certainly had a change in weather since this morning when we were commenting about how beautiful the weather was and what a nice autumn day it was, and tonight is rainy and gloomy and dreary. Uh, so we had a major change in weather, but it's still a great opportunity to be together to worship God. And we thank you all for being here tonight to be a part of it. As was already mentioned, we're grateful for our visitors. We want you to come back every time you have a chance to be here. Tonight, we want to discuss just briefly about how we got here. How is it that we are here? Now, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, you drove your car or you drove your truck to get here. I'm not talking about how you got to this particular place. I'm talking about us as, as a humankind. How did we get here? How are we here? How did this earth form? How, how did the universe come into existence? And as humans, uh, r- really, for all living things, how did living things come to be on this planet Earth? That's what we mean when we ask the question, how did we get here? Now, I think that you know that ancient history, uh, as taught in our schools and universities, uh, shows you will see on TV or movies you will watch, all that sort of thing, they make some claims about how we got here. For instance, they would argue that the earth formed over eons of time. And when we use the word eon, we mean long, long, long extended periods of time. You get different numbers depending on who you read after, but typically... Those who believe such tell us that the material universe came into existence, the Big Bang. Now, I don't know how in the world they can get any kind of accurate estimation for such things, but they estimate that the Big Bang happened 20 billion years ago. That's a long time. That's a big number. 20 billion years ago. of course, what they, what they want to argue is that all of the matter of the universe came so compressed, it was, it was compressed into something about the size of the head of a pencil or less. And of course, when it got packed together that tight, there was a lot of heat, a lot of energy, and it just exploded. And it, that was the Big Bang. And it all went hurtling out in different directions. Uh, of course, it was super hot and moving really fast. And it took a long time to slow down and cool off enough to be able to form solids like our stars and planets. Uh, And so, Big Bang 20 billion years ago, they claimed that it was only, that that things had cooled off and slowed down enough, it was only about 4 billion years ago when our solar system formed. Uh, The Earth, the Sun, and the other planets formed about 4 billion years ago. So they're talking about vast periods of time in which the universe was formed. And then, of course, as we all well know, they believe that humans evolved from ape-like creatures. Uh, Typically, they would argue that life began to be seen on this planet. Now, they can't explain how that happened, and so all they can say it was a spontaneous generation of life from non-living matter. And so you had stuff here that wasn't alive, And somehow, although we don't know how, this non-living matter sprang to life. They claim that that happened about 1.5 billion years ago. About one and a half billion years ago, somehow or another, a single living cell came into existence. We can't explain it. We can't duplicate it even under the best laboratory conditions, but we're supposed to believe that's what happened. Life formed spontaneous generation of life from non-living matter about one and a half billion years ago. And then we're led 
to believe, or told that we ought to believe anyway, that from that single living cell, all the life forms that exist on the earth today came to be over a long process of evolution, right? And evolution suggests that a continuing succession of beneficial mutations brought about all the different living things that we see on the earth today. Humans, we humans, they argue, are fairly recent uh, additions to the process that it wasn't until only about four million years ago that humans finally evolved. That's what they tell us, right? That's what our children are being taught in schools and universities. That's what you'll see if you watch TV, documentaries, and so forth. That's what they say. And then, of course, they would also argue that the geological strata that we see formed over billions of years. The earth has been here for four billion years, and so the rock structures and layers and strata and all of that took a long, long process of time. Some of us have had the, the great privilege of visiting the Grand Canyon. And they will look at something like the Grand Canyon, and they say the Grand Canyon had to take millions and millions and millions of years to form. It happened over a very long period of time. So that's what we're being told by supposed scientists and experts in our world. But then when we go to the Bible, the Bible tells an entirely different story than that. Genesis teaches us that the physical universe was created in six literal days in the recent past. And when I say recent past, you take all of the biblical chronology and genealogies together and you try to form a, a continuous line, you're going to come out with about 6,000 years ago. Genesis 1 was about 6,000 years ago. And some people say, oh, there may be some gaps in some of those genealogies. There are not many. If they were, they were all before Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, because we know we have a very complete list from, Genesis, uh, from Abraham on. But if, if you wanted to grant that there may have been some skips in the very earliest genealogy, you might get Earth's history up to 10,000 years. I don't hardly think so. It's probably more on the order of 6,000 years old. The Earth was formed in the recent past. Genesis 1 says it happened in six days. We believe they were literal days. We believe they were consecutive days. We've argued that before. We're not going to go into that tonight. But uh, Genesis certainly has a different picture than what these evolutionary scientists are telling us. Genesis also tells us that man was created in God's image, that God from the dust of the earth formed man in his own image. Uh, and, and when he was created, he was a full-grown, mature human being. Uh, it was not an evolutionary process that took millions of years to or even billions of years to accomplish. Um, God created man. He created man uh, in, in his fullness. So we, he created man as we know man to be today. And Genesis also tells us that there was a catastrophic worldwide flood in the days of Noah. Uh, I believe that if, if we were, if we could really picture it, if we had, if we could have seen the earth before the flood and after the flood, if we could make a comparison, if we had all of the data, I think a lot of the geology that we see in the earth today was formed as a result of Noah's flood contained in the book of Genesis. 
the Grand Canyon, for instance. How did the Grand Canyon get to be? I believe the Grand Canyon was formed in the aftermath of Noah's flood. Uh, and so, uh, really, what we're saying is a totally different picture in Genesis than what these evolutionary scientists are trying to tell us. And so there's a conflict. There's great difference. I mean, they are worlds apart, at, at complete opposite ends of the spectrum here. The evolutionary scientists and what Genesis tells us about our beginnings, how we got here. Now, in order to resolve this parent conflict, what some people have decided to do is that uh, they need to, some people feel a real burden to try and mesh what the Bible says with what these unproven claims of science are. And so, uh, how can we get the Bible to mesh with, how, how can we get Genesis to mesh with all of this that we were talking about up here? How can we get them to fit together? And some people feel like there's just a tremendous burden to be able to do that. I don't, think, I don't think we are burdened in that way, but some people think that there is just a real need to do so. And so what they want to say is that Genesis does not really convey actual events. It was never intended, especially those first chapters of Genesis, were never intended to be taken literally. Let me give you uh, an example of that. Basically, these people, they, they claim to believe in God, but they also want to believe what evolutionists teach. And so, if you wanted to boil it down just as simple as it gets, they'd like to argue that God used evolution to get us to where we are today. And that, that, In a nutshell, that's what we call theistic evolution. Evolution guided by God's hand. God in evolution. That's what they would like to teach. And we call it theistic evolution. Let me give you an example of some of that kind of thinking. BioLogos is a group of pro uh, professed Christians uh, who are devoted to explaining how they see the Bible harmonized with these unfounded claims of science that we've just been describing. The number of prominent theo uh, uh, theologians have sort of joined forces together and formed this organization called BioLogos, and, and their website is biologos.org. You can go there and look. Uh, some well-known names in denominational circles are there. One of the guys you may have heard of is a fellow highly respected. In fact, unfortunately, I even hear some of our own brethren quoting after N.T. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. N.T. Wright is one of the members of this BioLogos organization. Uh, he's, he's wrong. Uh, he's clearly wrong on Genesis. Here's the kind of thing they say on that website. The story of Noah, the ark, the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 is one of the most famous and controversial passages in the entire Bible. The story centered around, uh, the, the story centered around a global cataclysm and a floating wooden zoo has captured the imagination of people for millennia. Until modern times, most Christians assumed that the story referred to acts, an actual worldwide event. That happened in the, uh, excuse me, assumed that the story referred to an actual worldwide event that happened in the relatively recent past. And this interpretation of the flood continues to be a central feature of young earth creationism. However, the discoveries of modern science, as well as an explosion of new knowledge about the ancient world of the Bible, have decisively challenged whether this interpretation is the best reading of the text. The scientific and historical evidence is now clear. There has never been a global flood that covered the entire earth 
nor do all modern animals and humans descend from the passengers of a single vessel. Notice, they said most Christians assumed the story referred to actual worldwide events. So that was just an assumption. I mean, there's no evidence of it. There's no proof for that. It was just an assumption. People assumed that. But now they say uh, the evidence is clear there has never been a global flood. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, they, they make a, a, a positive assertion there, but there's no proof for it. Now, the point of this is uh, that you see the compromise they're making on just that part of the early Genesis story about, about Noah's flood, right? You see how they're trying to compromise. And so basically what they're saying is the story of Noah is not real. It's just not real. Never, they plainly say there has never been a global flood. Now, that's just a story that was told to explain things that simple people without a lot of intellectual knowledge, it was just a story told to convey to them uh, some aspect of God and God's dealing with mankind. And it really never was intended to be taken literally. They say the problem is people trying to take that literally. It was never intended to be, uh, it never was intended to be literal. People were trying to take it literally, and it never was intended to be so. In fact, they basically say this is just Jewish poetry. This is just storytelling on the part of the Jews. And that the early chapters of Genesis don't convey real history. And so that brings us to our question that we want to look at just briefly tonight about those first chapters of Genesis. And usually the chapters under contention are Genesis chapters 1 through 11. That's the section that these people... Now, remember, these people claim to be Bible believers. They're claiming to be Bible believers, but they're attacking those first 11 chapters of Genesis and saying, that's just poetry. That's just sort of make-believe. That was never intended to be literally true. Well, you think about Genesis 1 through 11, there's some really important things in Genesis 1 through 11. The creation, of course, is in there. Adam and Eve sinning, the fall of mankind is in there. Noah's flood is there in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, right? So you got Noah's flood in there. And then Genesis 11 ends with the Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel is in Genesis 11. So all of that, all of that is just sort of make-believe, and it's not really true, and it's just poetry. It's not real history. I'd like to propose three responses to that claim, that it's not real, it's just poetry. I think it's wrong, and I think it's clearly wrong for three different lines of reasoning that I want to present just real briefly here. First of all, if we treat Genesis 1 through 11 as non-history, then what other passages should be labeled as poetic or non-historical? Can, can we do that to anything? Any passage we come to, we don't like the implications of it. Any passage we come to it and some atheistic scientist somewhere says it couldn't be that way, we'll, we'll just write that out there. We'll believe the atheistic scientist, and we'll, we'll just say that what the Bible says in regards to that is just fictional. It's poetry. We're going to do that because this atheistic scientist over here doesn't believe it, and he thinks something else. He can't prove what he thinks, but he thinks something else. And we'd rather believe him than believe God, and so we're going to believe him, and we're just going to label what section? You, you, can we just do that to any section of the Bible we want? We can just say, that's not intended to be literal. That's, that's just 
poetry. That's, that's just Hebrew prose, if you will. I think that's a big mistake, don't you? Now, we should note that the Bible certainly does contain poetry. And actually, we would quickly acknowledge that the Bible does contain sections that are figurative in nature, with symbolic language. We're not, we're not arguing about that. We agree to that. But I'm going to tell you, when you read Genesis chapters 1 through 11, that doesn't read like poetry. That doesn't read like figurative passages in other places in the Bible. That reads like a straightforward account of real events. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 uses the same tenses and the same tones as you find in the rest of Genesis history. How do we know? If, if, if the first chapters are poetry, how do we know where we would, and where would we be able to draw the line where poetry stops and history begins? Every Bible believer believes in Abraham, right? And, and we pick up the story of Abraham in chapter 12. Well, why draw that line between 11 and 12? Why, why, maybe it should be drawn someplace else. Because you can't draw the line based upon a difference in writing style. The style is the same in chapters 1 through 11 as it is in the rest of Genesis. You, get, you begin to get the idea they drew that line right there because it, it facilitated their theological agenda. And their theological agenda is to compromise with science. That's what they want to do. Um, let me give you an example. The first parts of Genesis are just like the later parts of Genesis. In the text that Gordon read for us earlier in Genesis 1, God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God, said to the, uh, uh, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, if this is not history, then God didn't really say that, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't we have to make that conclusion? If this is not historical, if this is really just Hebrew poetry, then God didn't really say that. Be fruitful and multiply it to Adam and Eve. Because right? Adam and Eve are kind of, kind of fictitious characters themselves, right? If this is just poetry. All right, go way later in the book of Genesis to a section of Genesis that everybody agrees is literal history. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. You know what we got there? We got exactly the same expression. Now, no one disputes that God said it here, but how would we know that he, he truly did say it in Genesis 35, but he didn't say it in Genesis 1? You see the problem? You see the problem? Genesis 1 through 11 is written just like the rest of Genesis, and it reads like straightforward, a straightforward accounting of real events. All right? So we would make that as argument one. Argument two. Jesus quoted early Genesis as actual history. Uh, you, you know the passages that I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to one like Mark chapter 10, verse 6 beginning. From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Jesus is quoting what there? He's referring to Genesis 2, isn't he? about the institution of the marriage relationship. But notice, 
he says, from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. This theistic evolution says male and female didn't come along until more than a billion years after. Well, actually, if the Big Bang happened 20 billion years ago, it was almost 20 billion years after the beginning at the Big Bang. It was almost 20 billion years later because man didn't come along until about 4 million years ago, we're told. So it was almost 20 billion years after the beginning of the creation when man and woman came along. That's not what, that's not what Jesus said, right? Jesus quoted, or, or referred to at least here, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as being actual history. Look at another example. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was foretelling the destruction of, of the city of Jerusalem and the, and the final end of time. And he says, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus referenced Noah. He talked about the ark. Jesus treated early Genesis as actual history. Now, our point in that is, if Jesus quoted Genesis as actual history, why would he do that if he knew that it was just poetry and was not meant to be taken uh, in its plain, literal sense? Uh, if anybody knew, he would know, right? If anybody knew that that was poetry, not to be taken in a literal connotation, Jesus would know that. Well, if he knew it wasn't literal, and yet he referred to it as though it were, what was he doing there anyway? Was he just trying to be purposefully deceitful? Lead people astray? Make people think that which wasn't actually so? Of course, we know that that's not the case. And so, when Jesus quoted early Genesis, he knew it was actual history and he treated it as such. Jesus wasn't the only one. Some of the inspired apostles also referred to it. Peter and Paul referred to Genesis 1 through 11 as actual history. Peter said in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, Once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Again, Peter talked about Noah and the ark. That's real history contained in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Our kids in our Bible drill class could answer this question. What's the first thing God created? Light, right? God said, let there be light. He commanded the light to shine out of the darkness. Paul was referring to creation there, and he treated it again as actual history. And so, uh, first argument, Genesis 1-11 through 11 reads like real history. Second argument is Jesus and the apostles referred to Genesis 1-11 through 11 as actual history. And then our third argument would be, really, what we observe, even from a scientific standpoint, what we observe, what we observe on earth fits much better with the Genesis story than with the unfounded claims of unbelieving scientists. Okay, 
we've talked about this plenty of times before. I'm just going to very, real briefly mention some of the arguments we use to teach a young earth and not an ancient universe. As we said earlier, the unbelievers would have us to understand that the universe is 20 billion years old. Our solar system is 4 billion years old. Life has been here on planet Earth for one and a half billion years. Man has been here for four million years. they got this great, huge, long timetable, right? We know the Bible teaches a relatively short time. 6,000 years is a long time. But in comparison to what these unbelieving scientists try to teach us, it's just a blinking of the eye. 6,000 years. So, which, which of the, these are opposite ends of the spectrum, right? There's no similarity here at all between the Bible timeline and the, theist, and the evolutionary timeline. There's no, there's, no, there's no commonality to that at all. Which one fits better? Well, we make arguments like the shrinkage of the sun. You know this argument. Well, we've made it many times. Scientists have been able to measure the rate at which the sun is shrinking. That's not surprising to know that our sun is shrinking. It's just a burning mass out there in space. When things burn, they burn up, right? And so as the sun burns, it's shrinking. They've been able to measure how, the rate of shrinkage of the sun. Uh, it, just within the last few decades, they've been able to measure that. And they, and they now know that the sun is shrinking so, at, at a rate in which if you, if you tried to go backwards in time, if you went, just, if you went back just 100,000 years ago, now, Earth hadn't been here for 100,000 years, but if it had been here for just 100,000 years, the sun would have been so large that it would have encompassed the Earth, encompassed the orbit of the Earth. This sun-Earth relationship is so critical to our existence here. Uh, if we were 10% closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were 10% farther away from the sun, we'd freeze to death. We are in, this, I, always, I think this is kind of comical, but we are in what they call the Goldilocks zone for, for sustaining life. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. We are in the Goldilocks zone. And, and there's no way that that relationship of sun and earth, that critical distance, there's no way that that distance could have been maintained for what they say. Life has been on earth for one and a half billion years? There's no way. Man has been here for four million years? There's no way. There's no way that critical distance between the sun and the earth could have been maintained for those periods of time. The story fits much better that's told in Genesis, where we were created just a few thousand years ago as full-grown, mature beings. You see how the story told in Genesis fits better. There are other arguments we make. Again, we're making these arguments from science itself. Science itself points toward a young Earth. We know that the Earth's magnetic field is decaying. It's going away. Uh, and that's really kind of important to us. If you, if, if you study about that at all, the Earth's magnetic field is really important. It's not just important for Boy Scouts when they look at their compass when they do orienteering. Uh, I, I know Boy Scouts depend on that magnetic field to, to direct their compasses so they can do their, their, their trail hikes and so forth. 
But actually, the Earth's magnetic field is really important to our existence for life on Earth. The Earth's magnetic field protects us from harmful solar radiation. It deflects it away from us. If the magnetic field wasn't there, we, we wouldn't be able to live here. The Earth's magnetic field is very essential to life on Earth. But it's going away, and it's actually going away pretty quickly. The half-life of the Earth's magnetic field is 1,400 years. What that means is every 1,400 years, the Earth's magnetic field is half of what it was. If, if you started right here, 1,400 years from now, the Earth's magnetic field would be half of what it is right now. Uh, and so it's, it's going away. It's going away relatively fast. Uh, fast. They say it's one of the fastest measurable geological, uh, geo, I guess they call it a geological phenomenon. It's one of the fastest measurable phenomenon that's happening on planet Earth. Now, don't worry. It's not going to go away in our lifetimes or our children's lifetime or our grandchildren's lifetime. It's there. It's there for good. It's there for our good for the foreseeable future. But given enough time, it would go away completely. But what we also can do is we can calculate backwards. If we know how fast it's going away, we can calculate backwards to how big it used to be. And just 10,000 years ago, just 10,000 years ago, the Earth's magnetic field would have been so strong that the Earth would have disintegrated from its own internal forces just 10,000 years ago. What's that tell you? It tells you the Earth's got to be less than 10,000 years old, right? That's science. That's not the Bible saying that. The Bible says that, but science says that too. Um, oh, we can make lots of other arguments. Uh, the, the decay of radioactive matter. If, if the universe is as old as they say it is, there would be no radioactivity left because we know radioactivity decays over time, right? Some of it, some of the half-lives of certain radioactive elements is really long. But they would have, in 20 billion years, there would have been tw plenty of time for all the radioactivity in the universe to have gone away, and it hasn't even come close to that, right? All those kind of arguments, those are, those are the arguments of science that say the Earth is relatively young, and the story told in Genesis makes sense, and it actually fits the observable data that we have. We can talk about the fossils. If evolution happened then the, that we ought to see signs of it in the fossil record, right? In other words, if, uh, if birds evolved from reptiles, that's what they tell us, that's what evolutionists want us to believe, that the birds we see today are the evolutionary offspring of reptiles so long ago. Well, if that's the case, wouldn't we expect to find in the fossil record the progression of that, the missing links between reptiles and birds. Or for that matter, would we expect to find the missing links, the fossil records of the evolution of man from the primates, from the, from the monkeys and apes? Wouldn't we expect to see that in the fossil record? And it's not there. The fact of the matter is, fossils are almost not ever formed anymore. Fossils are not being formed now. You know when the vast majority of fossils, fossils are found all over the earth. Everywhere you go, there are fossils. You know how they got there? Noah's flood. That, that, Noah's flood itself explains the fossil record. And again, we could go to that argument about life from non-living matter. That's a scientific impossibility. Scientists cannot explain it. They cannot make it happen. Uh, again, another scientific proof. 
that the, that the account, the historical account told in Genesis 1 through 11 is real and literal. It's not just Hebrew poetry. And so the answer to our question, actual history or figurative poetry, I think there's just no doubt about it. Genesis, early Genesis, is actual history, and we need to believe it. It tells all the answers we desperately need to know. It's valuable information to us, and we should have great faith in it. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to sing a song of invitation. This lesson has not been one to teach people what to do to be saved, or for that matter, even necessarily motivate people to come to the Lord, but we would not want to end our service without providing that opportunity. If you have a need either to obey the gospel or if you need the prayers of the saints, if there's anything that we can do to assist you in helping you make your life right with God, please let us know while we stand and sing this song.